2: Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa,
1: Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Hope. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders.
2: Come find yours. Good morning,
3: good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. I'm your host, Nicholas Eaton clark sounding a little bit better than last week, and I'd like to welcome you to show number 131, which has dropped on Election Day in the US. If you're listening to this a day or more later, you will be aware of exactly how screwed the world is and whether or not someone will need to time travel into the past to fix it. Which brings us to our first story in the timeline where the Moscow Metro opened in 1934, by S.L. Harris, a writer and archaeologist who lives in Chicago with his wife and daughter and their faithful hound. His work has appeared or is forthcoming in Abyss and Apex, Daily Science Fiction and Plasma Frequency. He occasionally tweets as at S.L. underscore Harris. And now, let's spend a few minutes in the timeline where the Moscow Metro opened in 1934.
2: In the timeline where the Moscow Metro opened in 1934, we live together, at a Khrushchevka on Bourbon Street, and eat green caviar on waffles. Times are hard, but we love each other like we never love each other, like we never loved anyone else in all the hundreds of millions of timelines I've seen. I leave because I think I can find something better, and I've been trying to find my way back ever since. Not back, you can never go back but trying to find another life where we have what we had in that Khrushchevka on Bourbon Street. My first stop after I leave, the timeline where Great Alexander's army never revolted, I lose you in the crush of the party where I met you and never find you again. That's all right. I've been through enough lives to know not to expect immediate success. A few hundred timelines later, the one where Apollo 1 made its launch, we're married. We have two children. Good jobs. Small circle of friends. When we're alone, we're polite but distant. I go to sleep each night, aching for those mornings, listening to Leonard Cohen and Vladimir Votievsky on the crank radio while the garbage truck rattles down the street. I slip out one night while you sleep. In the timeline where Santa Anna crushed Winfield Scott at Cerro Gordo, our fights are so terrible I leap away and seek timelines in which I die horribly. Cancer, mutant wolves, and zeppelin crashes, that I can never go through with it. At the last minute, the pain closing in, the jaws clamping shut, the spark catching fire, I leave. I am a coward. Hope returns to me in the timeline where Abdul Rahman won the Battle of Poitiers. We spend languid afternoons walking in the orange gardens of the Gulf, and I sing to you sad songs, in which your lips are cornelian, and your eyes are those of a young fawn. Years we live in what I think is perfect harmony, but I find you in the arms of another poet." It is a brief thing, and we could perhaps have talked it through, but I cannot forgive you. I cannot forgive myself for not knowing your unhappiness. I slam the door and step into another life. We do not meet in every timeline, but in most. People might be surprised at this, but people don't generally understand anything about time or destiny. The odds are not small where destiny is concerned. In the timeline where bronze working never took off, we huddle together in a little lean-to, the night wrapped around like a python the size of the world. We make passionate love, and with stones we chase the hungry world away. But we do not have the words to make it like it was those nights in nouvelle Orleans. I sit beside the dying fire and watch you scraping skins, and my heart is filled almost to overflowing. I try to banish the voice calling for something else. I sing boisterously, and dance the spirit dances to banish it. But it will not go. So I do, hating myself. I dash angrily through a dozen timelines, good and bad, finally opening the door on another. It's the one where Malcolm Lowry sobered up, where we seem happy at first, but it all feels wrong, choreographed somehow. It's like living with perpetual déjà vu. I notice you watching me carefully. One morning you look at me and say you're leaving, and suddenly I see it. You can do this, too. Who knows how many times you have done it? How many perfect lives of ours you've shattered? Everything that can snap inside me snaps. I blast through universes. Chronospheres shatter like fine glass before me. I jackhammer through all the people we could have ever been, could ever be. We live lives of perfect domesticity, towering success, abysmal failure. In every one, I make myself see perfidy in you. In every one, I see you mocking me, running to some other timeline, seeking a better me. I land, exhausted, in the timeline where evolution stalled out with the trilobites. And I lose myself in the wet and endless sand. My thoughts become colder and emptier every day. If I stay, the hurt will pass, and there will only be dark waves and the roiling mass of shells. I can't stay. In the timeline where Henry VIII was monogamous, I'm a real estate agent between jobs and you're a freelance journalist. Times are tough, tougher even than back on Bourbon Street. The rent is past due, and our neighbors wake us screaming, so there are no lazy mornings with Wachewski who was never born in this timeline anyway. I get Lato from a Filipino market and take it in a mason jar to the Waffle House where we go on Sundays. It doesn't taste the same. Sometimes I grouse to myself that, even with the Bill of Rights intact, this timeline suffers in comparison where the Moscow Metro opened in 1934. But this timeline has something that no other timeline has. I think of it when we sort through the pantry, trying to make something palatable or stare wearily at each other over Bill's and our crying child, and I imagine that you are thinking it too. We never speak of it. We learn that it is impossible to speak of it, this choice we make each instant. But the secret knowledge of it is the knowledge that this timeline is unique. This is the timeline where we stay.
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: And that delightful little tale was read by Logan Waterman. Logan has a degree in technical theater from California State University and has worked in many theaters, large and small, professional and amateur He has also worked for Apple Computers, sold hot tubs and comic books, and prepared court documents. He has taught and performed sword fighting for the stage, and run lights for a local band until they broke up. Logan currently lives in Northern California with Grendel, a huge black beast whose primary occupations are sleeping, stalking the fish in the aquarium and keeping the house safe from the hordes of invisible monsters that come out after dark and Morgana, a small fluffy queen who rules her domain with an iron paw. The fish are... unimpressed. As of this bio, he has narrated for all five District of Wonders shows, Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Far-Fetched Fables, and our late and lamented sister podcasts, Protecting Project Pulp and Crime City Central. To date, he is the only story narrator to have earned ace status. High five, Logan. Our next story is The Last Song. By Jerry Lean, Jerry lives in Northern Virginia but originally hails from Seattle. She has work appearing or accepted by Nature, Flame Tree Presses, Murder Mayhem, and Dystopia Utopia anthologies, Daily Science Fiction, Escape Pod, Grimdark, and others. She recently caught the editing bug and is finalizing her third anthology for an independent press. You can find her online at jerrylean.com. The story is read for us by Roberto Suarez. By day, Roberto works as a community college student advocate and recruiter. By night, he geeks out on all things fantasy and science fiction, comic books and board games. He is the co-host and producer of A Pod of Casts, the Game of Thrones podcast, and the new Radio Westworld, a podcast dedicated to HBO's latest science fiction series. You can find Roberto on the web at roberto.suarez.me and on Twitter as at possibly the best Twitter handle anywhere, ever. So now let's listen to The Last Song.
1: Haze rises like swamp gas in the capital, and Lupe can smell the exhaust swarming up around him from the traffic stalled on the Avenida La Reforma. The tourists are sweating as they head for the restaurants and shops, or back to their hotels, to stay in for the night. A man pushes past the others, hurrying, late perhaps. Sweat stains his fine shirt, darkening the fabric under the arms and down the back. "'It's a hot one,' Hector mutters. He doesn't sweat even though his charango lies flat against his back as he walks, the wood gleaming, the strings reflecting silver-white in the dying light. Enrique pushes his guitar back, but it's too big to lie flat. It flops to the front after he has taken a few steps, the woven strap worn and faded and barely connected to the instrument. So it's hot. So what? They have been together too long to waste words. But Lupe knows they can't remain entirely quiet. Silence is worse than death. And they should know. Despite the coldness that pervades his body, Lupe can still feel the setting sun on his face. He can hear the sounds all around him as the tourists come out to find dinner in this safe place that the city has carved out for them. The zona Viva, the lively zone. It makes him laugh. In all of Guatemala City, it's the only zone he and his two friends can travel, yet they are far from lively. He touches the patch that covers his left eye, knows the once-white cloth must be filthy. A childhood infection cost him his eye, but the stains are from falling face-down in the dirt, from dying face-down in the dirt, shot through the side as he played at a wedding. Shot with his friends as they got ready to play the latest Hoyt Axton's song from the north, a song they'd practiced over and over, but they never played at that wedding. They have never played it since, either. They tried to play it, after they first woke and pushed themselves up from the dirt, only to find that, even though they were walking around, their bodies were still lying on the ground. Once they got over the shock, once they realized they still had voices and ghostly instruments that responded to ghostly fingers, they tried to play the Axton song, but they discovered that they could only play music someone else had asked them to play in the past, back when they were still breathing. Over the years, they've tried to play other things and when they do, their fingers brush strings that will not vibrate. Their lips move, but no sound comes out. It's frustrating, and every time it happens, Lupe gets a sensation of something larger at work. He suspects that if he could just play something of his own choosing, something no one has requested, he'd be free of this place. And free of the two men who were just guys he played guitar with, not guys he would die with, guys he'd spend years getting to know. He wants to tell them both that they could be free, but he can't, because his mouth refuses to put the thoughts into words. They probably know, though. They aren't dumb, even if he does most of the talking and planning, whatever planning there is to be done, by a dead man. They get to the spot where they will cross the many lanes of La Reforma and Lupe grabs Enrique, pulling him back. There is no reason to stop Enrique. They can cross at any time. The cars will go right through them. But Lupe hates it when they do that. He likes to walk with the people, not through them. He likes to pretend that he's still part of their lives, that he still has a life. They pass the tree-lined strip of grass in the middle of the avenida, and Lupe sees an old Mayan woman napping, hunched up against one of the trees. She stirs and opens her eyes and sees him, really sees him. She sits up with a gasp, looking around wildly and earning concerned stares from the tourists. Then she seems to relax and leans back against the tree as if she never saw Lupe in the first place. Her power is apparently weak, only active when she lets go, not hers to control when she's awake. To truly see Lupe and the others, she would need to have great power at her disposal. To do more than see, to call them, would be extraordinary. It has only happened a handful of times over the years, since they died. Yet Lupe suddenly feels himself being called. Ay, this one is strong, Hector says, obviously feeling it too. He lifts his charango. I hope not like that last one. I wanted to beat him over the head with this. Lupe remembers. It would not have done any good. The man was no more tangible to them than they were to him. The only thing they shared was the music he wanted them to play. It's not a man this time, Enrique says. Lupe nods in agreement. He can feel the power of this one. Feminine power. Dark and light, both. If it were a color, her power would be red and yellow. Bright. Very bright. And she's calling them without realizing it. She wants music. It is not a spell, though. She is a bruja, but one at rest. They are being called on a whim. She has eaten, she drinks coffee, she wants music. Her power is such that they are drawn to her solely to make her evening more pleasant. Enrique looks angry, or Lupe thinks he's angry. Even after thirty years, it is hard to tell what Enrique is feeling. Of all of them, He did not die instantly, and the struggle is still on his face. He lay in the dirt, blood draining slowly out of him, while the others waited until finally he too crossed over. He's looked sour ever since. Not that he was a thing of beauty before with his rotted front teeth and bat skin, but his eyes used to sparkle. Now, now his eyes are dead. I hate tourists, Héctor says, glaring at the people who walk right through him as they head for their rooms in the big hotels that lie at the other end of the sauna. You hate everyone, Lupe mutters. I don't hate Enrique, Héctor says with a sour smile. It's a slap to Lupe, and he takes it without comment. Somehow his friends think this is his fault, that they are trapped together. Not alive, not fully dead, no peace, just this endless wandering. As if he makes the rules. He can't even spit the rules out as he imagines they are. This is not his fault. It may not be anyone's fault. It may just be what it is. It may be what happens in this mysterious land when you die just as you are about to play a new song. He doesn't know. Look, Enrique says, making the sign against the evil eye as he points with his other hand at the trees over the restaurant they are being drawn to. Eight crows sit in the branches, not cawing, not moving, just there. They guard her, Hector crosses himself. They may just be waiting for scraps. It is a steakhouse. Lupa doesn't know why his friends still fear the unknown. It would be pleasant if, after years in this life that is no life, they could stop seeing evil in everything that is strange. Or do they view themselves as evil too? Do they view their endless rounds of the sauna as evil? Is it evil to be occasionally seen in the still of the night, to be heard by anyone with the gift, to listen? As they play their music from the grass of the avenida. But as they walk into the restaurant, as the woman looks at them, Lupe knows that Hector is half right. The woman is not evil, but the crows, descending in a rain of black cawing as they settle on the open window sills, do seem to be guarding her. He sees an old dog sitting at the door separating the small outer dining room from a bigger room where a poetry reading is going on. The dog does not take his eyes off the woman except to glance at Lupe and his friends, as if he may try to attack them if they move wrong in her presence. Animals can always see them, sometimes even welcome them. This one clearly does not. You play? The woman's voice is tripping with delight at their appearances as she speaks in their tongue. But Lupe can feel her power, and it is from the north. She does not think in Spanish, but in English. He answers back in that language easily, even though it has been years since he last spoke it. What do you want to hear? She says, El cóndor pasa. And at first he thinks it is the only song she knows that she thinks they'll know too. But as they play, he feels her spirit rise to soar with the music. As high as the Andes, those mountains far to the south in another place where magic covers the land. As they play, he feels their music rise to soar with her spirit. Hector gasps, his fingers rushing over the strings of his charango, playing a harmony line that is almost discordant, improvising, as he has not done since he died. Enrique smiles wide, not bothering to hide the gap in his mouth. She watches them, probably taking in the state of their clothing, the dirt that stains every part of them. She does not seem to notice the blood, but it is dried and old and may only look like more dirt in the candlelit room. And they are facing her, have not turned their backs so that she can see where the bullets went in or came out, through the sides or lodged in their spines. Lupe feels the metal pieces that slammed into his ribs and lungs and heart moving for the first time since the soldiers interrupted that wedding with their machine guns and curses. The dog whines, crawling closer. She looks at it, smiling as she snaps her fingers. It abandons crawling, leaping up like a pup to rush to her. She pets it, then lets her fingers linger on his head as the music goes on. Lupe realizes the crows are dancing, hopping up and down, wings outspread. He thinks he sees colors trailing from the ends of their feathers. The night turns brighter and he sees the stars zip across the sky in time with the music he and the boys are calling forth from their instruments. His voice has never sounded stronger, Enrique's guitar never more resonant, and Hector, Hector's harmony sends chills down Lupe's spine. He cannot remember the last time he felt the sensation. The song finally ends. The woman sips her coffee, smiling. The poetry readers do not miss a beat. They cannot hear the music. But a cat steals in from the outside, then another. They jump up on the window-sill, and the crows scatter, only to settle again on other window-sills less close to teeth and claws. "'Bruja magnifica!' Hector whispers, and he takes his hat off, holding it over his heart. Lupe believes Hector might ask the woman to marry him. He glances at Enrique, who is also staring at her, with something that approaches worship. She isn't beautiful, but she shines with an energy that is a mix of her own power and the power that lies hidden in the soil of his country. Where she and the land touch, there is a glow, as if a greater magic is being drawn out. Who are you? Lupe asks. Just a tourist. But he knows she's much more. He gets closer, and she does not flinch away as most do who can actually see him in all his dirt-stained glory. Sorrow lies in your path. He isn't sure why he has said it, but he sees it now, rising up before her. Like the rain of crows. Only he realizes she loves the crows, but she will not love what happens to her, she will barely survive what happens to her, but she will survive, and he thinks that it will not just be her own power that saves her, but the power of this place, of old dogs that bark like pups, and crows that dance with falling stars, and cats "'that jump down, bored when nothing else happens. "'She laughs, calling the cats to her, "'but they ignore her outstretched hand. "'The dog noses it as if trying to make up for the cat's disregard. "'Dogs are like men. "'Cats are like women,' she says. "'I have always thought so,' Lupe smiles at her, And when she smiles back at him, he wishes he could hold her just once, to know what the glow around her feels like. "'You said sorrow?' she asks. And her voice is resigned as if she expects tragedy in her life, and won't fight it, will almost welcome it. No wonder his land loves her. "'We all have sorrow.' He feels the need to take away her future, to give her a nicer one. Hector and Enrique have moved closer to him, their instruments pushed to the back to keep them out of the way, and they nod as if sorrow is something you can elude like rain by raising an umbrella or just staying indoors. Have you seen sorrow? She trails off and frowns, and he realizes she doesn't know his name and wants to. Lupe. The wolf. I like wolves. She pats the dog and he whines happily. Lupe wants to know her name, but does not ask her. There is power in names, and she is a witch. She will know this. My name is Amanda. She may know it, but she obviously does not care. And he senses that her power is not in her name. Her power is in every pore of her skin, every cell of her body. Her power, which will not stop the sorrow, which will not stop her pain. I have seen sorrow, he says. He has seen everything that can be seen in the sona viva, both bad and good, but mostly bad. At night, When everyone is home safe, there is no safety for those with no homes. Lupe and his friends watch and do nothing, because there is nothing they can do. What have you seen? I saw a white horse on the avenida today. She looks up at him. There was a man, dressed in old-fashioned clothes. "'riding him down the grass. "'No one else looked. "'Perhaps you see what others do not notice. "'Perhaps. "'Then again it is hard to miss a white horse "'prancing in the middle of a residential zone. "'This is Guatemala. "'People turn their eyes away from many things, "'both beautiful and horrible, "'like a white horse "'or the white dress of a bride being torn apart by machine-gun fire, the pale satin streaked red, then brown once it dried, and the soldiers went away. Lupe and his friends only got as far as the service area. They only made it to where the cars were parked. They should have been able to hide there, to survive, but the soldiers found them. No place was safe that day. Not even a dirt-packed driveway behind an expensive house, in the Sona Viva. You will play something else for me? She asks. He nods. What would you like to hear? What would you like me to hear? Hector and Enrique pull away. No, Lupe says, you must choose the song. Why? She is looking up at him and he is powerless to look away, locked in by her light brown eyes eyes that seem to turn green and then gray as he stares at her. Why, Lupe? Why must I choose? It is the way we only play what others want. What happens if you play what you want? He wants to tell her what he suspects, but he cannot get the words out. He can hear Hector and Enrique behind him, trying as well, Sounds coming out of their mouths, but not words, not sense. He finally can only say, I don't know. Very well. She looks down at the dog, over at the crows, then back up at him. I want you to play what you want to play. He's confused for a moment by the way she has phrased it. He thinks whatever holds them is, too, because as he reaches for his guitar, he feels a resistance, a resistance that gives way. Do you know Mr. Hoyt Axton? I've heard of him. I can't say I know his work. There is a song. Lupe is already starting the strumming, and the music they would have played at the wedding begins slowly the gentle sound giving way to something stronger, faster. It is clear she doesn't know the song, but her smile is pleased as they lose themselves in playing it for her. Lupe strums, hearing the higher notes of Hector's charango behind him, the special harmony they wrote for Enrique's guitar. It's beautiful. It's the most beautiful thing he's ever heard. He thinks Mr. Axton would be proud of them, even if the crows don't dance this time and the stars don't fall in time with their song. But it's all right, because the world begins to shift and turn, and then it spins around him until all he can see is Amanda somehow not spinning, wearing sorrow like a cape of crow feathers, but smiling now as she frees them. The song is coming to an end, and they make the finish bigger than they would have at the wedding, because it is the last song they will ever play together. Amanda closes her eyes, sitting motionlessly in the sudden silence that is broken by the squeal of the microphone from the other room, where another reader of poetry is droning on, oblivious to the poem that has just ended. That was beautiful, she says. Lupe wants to reach out for her. The barriers at the edges of the sauna are falling, and he can tell they are finally free. Yet all he wants to do is protect this woman. He senses Hector and Enrique putting their instruments away, but they don't walk off. They don't move closer either, with their hands out, as real minstrels would, asking for a tip. They just wait. It was An almost perfect night, she says. You have made it perfect. It was an honor to play for you. The words are older than Lupe. Hark back to when minstrels gained prestige by the stature of the person they played for. It was an honor to listen. Something in her smile tells him she knows... She will be the last person to ever hear them play. Good night. He forces himself to turn and is escorted out by the dog. The crows fly up to the tree as he and Hector and Enrique walk onto the paving stones on the patio. He stops, but his friends keep going. She looks up, sees him standing there, and lifts one hand in a gentle wave, and still he does not move, not until she looks away, staring down at her coffee cup as if trying to release him. Go, she finally whispers. He nods and walks on. He sees his friends ahead and hurries to catch up, rushing through people without it bothering him any more. They walk to the end of the sauna, to the obelisk, where they are normally stopped, and as they pass the barrier, the land seems to let go of them, and they begin to drift up as if they are balloons let go by a child in the park. Finally, Enrique says, closing his eyes as he starts to disappear. Hector says nothing, just smiles as he too closes his eyes. Lupe keeps his eyes open watching his friends become harder and harder to see. He looks back the way they came, sees a streak of white from the grass. There is a prancing horse with a man on it going down the avenida. The horse is keeping time with a young woman who walks back to the hotels at the other end of the sauna. A young woman who is followed by eight crows flying high in the sky looking out for her, crows that, as he watches, turn into rainbow quetzales, their turquoise tails flying out behind them like rare gemstones. Lupe can tell he's disappearing, and he strains to see the birds, but it's hard because they have changed back into crows, and their ebony feathers disappear against the night sky the same way he imagines he does. The woman looks up at them, then over at the horse, which seems to prance with more energy. She smiles, and it is a smile that invites sorrow to do its worst. Amanda, Lupe murmurs as he feels something light and wonderful enter what is left of his body. It's the same light he felt pouring into her from his land, pouring out of her, into the music. It is everything strong and good. It is everything that survives. She looks up to where he hangs in the sky. He must be nearly invisible, like a teardrop caught in a spider-web. She whispers, Good luck! Lupe does not question that he can hear her, or that she can see him lift his hand in one Last wave. Here, in his land, sorrow is everywhere. But so is magic.
3: The author, Gerilene, had this to say about the story. She said, The last song is very loosely based on something that happened during my own travels in Guatemala, The country is magical and dangerous, and the combination of the two makes for a heady experience. Strange things happen, but they often seem not at all unusual at the time, like a band of rather ragged street musicians coming straight to your table at a restaurant just after you've thought, but not said aloud, that the perfect finish to dinner would be some music. Add in some actual magic to the listener and the musicians, and the story gets stranger, and hopefully lyrical. This is actually one of the very first stories I wrote for publication, so it's a thrill to have it here. I can't wait to hear it read. Thank you, Jerry. We hope you and our listeners enjoyed it as much as we did. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes or any other podcatchers so that we can build our listenership and keep the stories flowing. My thanks, as always, go to Gary Dowell, my editor, and our audio engineer, Mark Zanfardino, for putting it all together. Please remember that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international license. How does that differ from the old one? Well, it still means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you still can't change it or sell it. And you still have to give credit where the credit is due. All other copyright also remains that of the authors. Violators will be forced to haunt the copyright office. And believe me, that's a threat worth being scared of. I'm off to action another week, dear listeners. I'll see you all next week. Same time, same place. Bye now.